And for our reflection this afternoon, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, reading from verse 8 to verse 13. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So we were considering from this chapter last week the theme of the Lord's coming, and we went on to look at the whole matter of how do we prepare for the Lord's coming. We established, first of all, that we prepare for the Lord's coming by being mindful of the circumstances of his coming. We won't go into details with regard to that, but the circumstances of his coming, which we don't know, it will come as a thief in the night. Then we need to be mindful of who we are as the people of God. And then thirdly, we prepare for his coming by dressing appropriately. And this is where the, the statement in verse it comes in, we are to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we pick up this afternoon in the fourth place, we prepare for the coming of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, by fostering supportive relationships among the brethren. The way we are going to prepare for the Lord's return is by fostering, by furthering supportive relationships among the brethren. We see that in verses 9 and following. And the Christian, we would say, has every reason to live with the assured hope of salvation. God's plan, we learn from verse 9, verses 9 and 10, for the Christian is not one of wrath, but it is one of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The guarantee the Christian has is the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what affords the prospect of eternity with Christ. Verse 10, Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And notice that it is on the basis of this assurance, it is on the basis of this hope, this hope of eternal salvation that Paul exhorted the Thessalonian believers in verse 11 with these words. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Certainly, these are days that call for encouragement. These are days in which we are to be encouraging one another, building one another up, because it is so easy for us as Christians to drift, to be taken up with the spirit of the times, and so lose our spiritual footing. And so the exhortation encourage and edify one another. This is a call for believers to minister to one another. The word encourage is from the Greek word parakaleo, which of course means it carries the idea of one coming alongside another, one who is called alongside another to render help, to render assistance and here in this context for the purpose of exhorting and encouraging. 
It is the word from which the name of the Holy Spirit is derived, namely parakletos, which means comforter. So that in comforting and encouraging one another, when the believer in Christ is undertaking a ministry of encouraging and comforting one another, that believer in Christ, we as believers in Christ, whenever we do that, we are doing the kind of work that God does, the Holy Spirit does. The Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3 that as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The rationale is this, God himself is a comforter and no more are we like God. There's no time when we are more like God, we could say, as when we are engaged in the business of encouraging and comforting one another as believers in Christ. In these days, as we await the coming of the Savior, we as believers in Christ are to be a means of blessing to one another, comforting and building up one another in a ministry of mutual encouragement and edification. This is what we are commanded to do as Christians. We see this command in such passages as Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And especially when we consider Jesus' words in Luke chapter 21, when he spoke of conditions in the world preceding his coming, it says this, Take heed that your hearts be not overtaken with the cares of this world, with eating, with drunkenness, and so that day come upon you unawares. Here's the thing, many today are tossed about on the one hand with anxieties, and on the other hand with the worldly pleasures, with worldly pleasures of this life. And when we are encouraging one another, what that does, it helps to keep us stay on track. Listen to the writer of Hebrews again in verses 23 to 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this command, this particular command of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where in light of the Lord's coming, he's saying to believers, encourage one another is consistent with what we find throughout the scripture that believers in Christ, particularly as the coming of the Lord draws near, need to be in this specific ministry of comforting and encouraging one another. And the Word of God tells us precisely how we should carry on a ministry of encouragement and edification in the church. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, the Thessalonian believers were commanded to comfort the bereaved with the truths concerning the return of Christ and the raising of those who died in Christ. And that is why Paul could say at the end, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. To the Romans, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14, verse 9, Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and not for mutual 
upbuilding. These are tension-filled days. These are days, as we look out into the world, we see, socially speaking, people are on edge. People are mean, they are unkind, people are very quick to become angry and even be hurtful towards others, even physically. These are the kinds of days we are living, and we as believers in Christ must see to it that this does not enter our life, this does not enter our church. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So how do we prepare for the Lord's coming? In light of the Lord's coming, we prepare by encouraging one another, by encouraging and exhorting one another. But second, as we prepare for the return of Christ, our supportive relationship in the body of Christ must involve Notice verse 12, knowing and esteeming those who labor among us. We prepare for the Lord's return by knowing and esteeming those who labor among us. Verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Let's talk a little bit about spiritual leadership in the church. The words over you translates a Greek word, a Greek verb, which literally means to stand before. And this posture of spiritual leaders, of pastors and elders standing before the congregation, it carries a sense of service. The expression carries a sense of service. It's like you think of somebody serving, let's say go to a restaurant and that person stands before you. Ministers, pastors, elders stand before the congregation in a posture of service. The phrase over you also conveys a sense of authority. And when we combine these two ideas of service and authority, there are people today, and rightly so, speak of what is known as servant leadership. The pastors, the elders are to have a posture of servant and as leaders, as servants and as leaders. Ours is a model of what we would call servant leadership. According to the word of God, church leaders, particularly elders, pastors, who are called by God, are not overlords. They are not called to be superstars over the church of Jesus Christ. They are called to be servants. First Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, they're called to be shepherd. They're called to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, exercising oversight as God would have them, not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples to the flock, Peter says. Well, the question is, what are they to be doing by way of serving the church as they stand before the congregation? And it is clear from our text, because it's right there in our passage, they are to be laboring, that is, working hard. Interestingly, the word that Paul uses for labor is the word that, that speaks of toiling to the point of exhaustion. And what that tells us, beloved, is that there are to be men who labor and toil for the Lord in the service of his people, in the service of his church. And the idea here is that their labor, their service 
for the Lord and for the church must not be half-hearted. They must not serve in a lackadaisical manner. They must not serve in a token fashion. They must serve assiduously. They must labor with intensity in ministering to the body of Christ. They are to labor, if need be, to the point of exhaustion. Now, I'll shudder to say this, and I blush to say this, that your elders work very hard. Paul will talk about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, those who labor at preaching and teaching. That is work. That is work. You know, I sometimes smile. You know, I would say if I come here like on a Saturday or Friday, somebody says, oh, you're working overtime. No, I'm not working overtime. The ministry, beloved, is demanding. It's, it's demanding. It's not a nine-to-five job. The minister, the elders, the pastors are on call 24-7. That's the idea. And it's not a situation. It's not a place for free-floating. It's not a place for loafing. It is work. Paul exemplified this level of intensity in his own ministry. He tells how that he labored in travail for the Galatians until Christ is formed in them. Listen to him in Galatians 4 verse 19. We can hear the passion, the intensity. He says this, my little children of whom I labor, of whom, for whom I travail in birth until Christ is formed in you. In 2 Corinthians 12 verse 15, he told the church at Corinth, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. In Colossians 1 28 29, he states how that in proclaiming and warning and teaching so as to present every man mature in Christ, here's what he says, I do so struggling with all his energy that works mightily within me. Second, we see in verse 12 that as pastors stand before the congregation, as they serve the Lord, as they lead the people of God, they are to admonish them. They are to admonish them. Paul says, they labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The idea here is this, that they are to be observant of the flock and with respect to those who are going astray, they are to, as it were, take them in hand. Of course, as we established in Sunday school this morning, it is to be done with gentleness, but also with firmness. The idea of admonition is this. It is that of bringing in a sobering way to the eyes of the brethren. Listen, you are going out of line. You need to come back. This is what God would have you to do. God is not pleased. That's the idea of admonishing Pastors are called to counsel, they are called to urge, they are called to warn the people of God concerning their duties, concerning their responsibilities before God. Why? Because we become remiss. And this goes for me as well. I need the oversight of my fellow elder. Every single one of us needs pastoral oversight. Why? Because if not for the grace of God, we become remiss, we become careless, we forget our spiritual duties. And the function of elders in the church is to teach the word of God, is to hold up the word of God before the people of God, and to call back the people of God to walk with God. Well, what is to be the duty of the congregation toward their leaders, toward their elders? Notice, first of all, the A part of verse 12. What are they to what is their responsibility to them? First of all, to recognize them, to recognize them. 
The word that's translated here in the ESV as respect literally in the Greek means to know. And what that tells us is that the church is to know their leaders. The church is to get to know their leaders. The church is to recognize their leaders for what they are. Many times people relate to leadership. I'm not saying necessarily in this church, but in a general way I'm speaking that sometimes members of churches have a poor relationship with their pastors, with their elders. Why? Because they are not informed concerning who their leaders are. They don't know them. A case could be made, too, that they don't make themselves accessible. That's also true. They are to recognize them. They are to know them. They are to see them for who they are as ministers of Christ. They are to see them as ministers of Christ whom the Lord has placed over them for the purpose of guiding them, for the purpose of shepherding them. And what we need to realize, beloved, is this, that it's a mark of God's mercy, it's a mark of God's grace when God places in a church spiritual leadership. When God places in a church men whom he calls, men whom he equips to serve the church, that is a blessing from God. Why? Because where there is not sound leadership, the people of God, they go astray. They go astray. And part of God's mercies is to, in fact, he himself says it, God says it in his word, I will give them shepherds after my own heart. Shepherds to feed them, shepherds to guide them. Notice, secondly, the church is not only to recognize them in the sense of knowing them, but the church is to respect them. Look at verse 13a. He says this, and to esteem them very highly in love. To esteem them very highly in love. No, it does not mean that they are to fanatically revere them. It doesn't mean that they are to treat them as uh, some god, demigod. What it means is that we should honor, we should honor and appreciate them. And it tells us the spirit in which we should honor and appreciate them. We should honor and appreciate them in love. Knowing, of course, that we benefit from their ministry spiritually. They help us in our faith. They bring the word of God to us. And notice the reason why they are to be held with such high regard and affection. Look at the end of verse 13. These words, because of their work. We are to esteem them highly in love, not for their personality, not for their likability. Although it is true that many people love their pastors because, oh, he's such a nice person. He should be a nice person. But the basis the word of God gives here is because of what they do as ministers of Christ, because of their work. I think we can safely say, and I say it without hesitation, that by and large our church relates well to spiritual leadership. That is a blessing from God. That is a blessing from God. In fact, this brings us to our third point. Live peaceably toward one another. Many times there are problems in churches. Why? Because congregation is at odds with the pastors or one of the pastors. Thank God for his grace in sustaining us throughout these years that he has kept us whole. W-H-O-L-E. He has kept us together. We thank God for that. But Paul says here, live peaceably toward one another. Be at peace among yourselves. Believers should live together in spiritual harmony. And the context here suggests that they should live in spiritual harmony, in spiritual unity, not only with their leaders, but with the rest of the congregation. 
Nothing can be more unsightly, nothing can be more unbecoming of the church of Christ than for Christians to be riddled with quarrels and contentions, with fightings and bickerings against one another, and nothing can more negatively impact on the character and growth of believers than disunity and disharmony among themselves. Paul knew firsthand the pain of such situation when a church is in conflict, when a church is in turmoil. Paul had before gone through great anguish as he dealt with church squabbles, the Corinthian church, the Philippian church. He had to literally beg two women in the Philippian church to be agreed and to be united. Even calling a third party, he says, help these women who labored with me. These women were at odds with each other. Paul knew the potential of divisions and infightings, the potential of infightings and quarrelings to split and destroy a church. Many a church has been destroyed, wrecked because of divisions in its midst. So he admonishes the Thessalonian believers, be at peace among yourselves. Among other things, Paul seems to be saying here, do not be overcritical of your leaders or of one another. Don't be hypercritical of them. Don't murmur and grumble against your fellow believers. Yes, there will be differences among you, but your differences should not divide you. Be at peace among yourselves. And it's significant that in a passage dealing with the Lord's return, we should find instructions regarding the need for harmonious, united relationships. James does very much the same thing in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. As Paul does here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 13, here's James in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. He says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Notice this command to unity is given in the context of the Lord's return. And the question is, why is it necessary to be at peace, for believers to be at peace among themselves, particularly in light of the Lord's return? Have you thought about that? Why is it necessary for believers to be at peace among themselves in light of the Lord's return? Well, I can think of this. Jesus, you remember in his Olivet Discourse, as he spoke to his disciples of conditions that would prevail just around the time nearing his return, among the things he told them, in fact, he told them by way of warning in Matthew 24, verse 12, here's what he says. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I mentioned earlier that the society, what with all the tensions, what with all the conflicts, what with all the hatred, the enmity, these things have a way of seeping inside the church of God affecting the people of God. And we need to be on the watch out. We need to be careful that we are not overtaken by the spirit of the times. And that's the idea here. Jesus is coming again. This is not a time for fights and squabbles. This is a time for unity. The argument is this, that if we're going to be at the same place, if we're headed for the same place, and we're going to be together in the same place in eternity, might as well we begin right now, to be united. I'm saying all of this once again, not because there's division among us, but it's a way of challenging, reminding us 
of these things as the word of God calls us to. One saying goes, to live with the saints in glory in heaven. He says, oh, what a glory. Something like that. But to live with the saints below, that's another story. And we want to turn that around and to say, just as there will be glory in heaven living with the saints, we want it to be right now. This is what we do as we prepare for the Lord's coming. We want to be encouraging one another. We want to be mindful of our spiritual leaders, relate properly to them, recognize them, respect them, not be overly critical of them, appreciate them, even as we appreciate one another. Now, this is not to say that we will be conflict-free. In fact, there's no church, no assembly of God's people here on earth that is going to be without problems. As long as we are thrown together, for however long, at some point, there is going to be some issue, however small. We're going to not always see eye to eye. The problem, here's the point, just as in a marriage, the problem is not, is not the conflict Many people feel that, okay, if we are saved, we're living together, we're not supposed to have conflicts. It's not true. Well, ideally we shouldn't. But at some point it's going to come. And the problem is not so much a conflict, but how do we handle and seek to resolve the conflict? And that's where Christian character comes. That's where patience comes. And that's where the need for us to encourage one another, not as Paul says, provoking one another, but building one another up. I trust as we ponder these things, as we think of the Lord's coming, that we would be truly prepared to meet him at his return. Remember the incentive, God has saved us. He has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. It's right in that context of the hope of the believer, the hope of spending eternity with Christ, the hope of being saved, that Paul says, live in this manner, therefore, encourage one another and so on and so forth. May God bless these words to our hearts, to our minds, for his name's sake. Amen.